Okay, uh, we're continuing our series in the Corinthian letters of Paul. We're in 1 Corinthians, where he addresses them as holy ones or saints, and they're called into a holy community. And in the first section, the first four chapters, he confronts them about dividing over their, their unity, over their attachment to specific ministers, rather than the message of the cross and the wisdom of God. In the second section, he tells them they're violating the holiness of the community by allowing a great sin in their midst and using the courts of the world to settle their disputes. They are to maintain the holiness and unity of the community and seek to glorify God with their bodies so that the gross sin is not found in the congregation. We're now in the third section, section 7 through chapter 7 through 10, which can be seen as an extension of what, is, what he has been saying, but it's also a what in Judaism is called a responsa section, where he addresses their concerns. Their concerns appear to be, based on the apostolic letter that we read in uh, Acts chapter 15, about Gentiles being required to observe four major commandments of the Torah. Abstaining from blood, food sacrificed to idols, things strangled, and from fornication. Paul had written a letter to them, it appears, to explain this in more detail, and they had sent questions to him. And in the last part, we, chapter 7, we looked at the issue of fornication and marriage, uh, probably based also on some questions they had regarding uh, the teaching of Jesus on this subject as found in the Gospel of Matthew. This week, we're going to look at him addressing idols and freedom in the Messiah. And we're going to cover uh, chapters 8 through 10, but not all today. We're just going to cover chapter 8. We need some time. And then after the holy days, we will pick up with with the rest of that. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And Paul begins with an interesting statement. He says, Now concerning things... Sacrifice to idols. Now, this is problematic in that for many years, any of us who are as old as I am, (laughs) which in many in here, but we grew up where idolatry in America simply wasn't practiced. The early church was in a pagan world. We're in a secular world. And that difference meant that preachers had to call TVs idols, and move, going to movies, idolatry. They had, to, they had to extend it way beyond some serious issues. But with the move from melting pot to pluralism in America, we are beginning to see religions from around the world reestablish themselves with their temples and their uh, rituals and in many restaurants, uh, idols that are set there and actually sacrifices are made to those altars. And so in that sense, we're back needing to address these in a more direct way. But Paul begins with a statement. He says, knowledge, uh, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now Paul does something interesting. He makes a statement regarding a principle that he's going to use in the context of talking about idols and food sacrifice idols. 
He says that the problem with knowledge is that when people get a little knowledge, when people get a lot of knowledge, when people get any knowledge, they begin to become arrogant. And then they start correcting everybody and they start arguing it with everybody to win an argument. Uh, in Christianity, we call it apologetics. I see your verse and raise you too. Right, that kind of thing. And the problem with that is, it is not about edifying and love, it's about arrogance. And the, one of the things that happens in every person who gets some training in anything becomes the know-it-all in that framework. And so knowledge puffs us up, feeds the ego, I know more than you, you got that wrong, I'm better than you. That is, Paul says, that's not what we're after. We all have some knowledge. We don't know what we should know. We need a little more humility. And after all, it's not about knowledge. It's about love, which edifies and builds up the other one. So he establishes that at the beginning in this context. So now he says in verse 4, uh, verses 4 to 6, he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one God. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in the earth or on, in heaven, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Now, what Paul's saying here is, uh, first of all, here's what we know as believers. That an idol is a piece of wood, or a piece of marble, or a piece of stone, or a piece of clay. The truth is, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. There's no brains inside. They have no power to do anything. And we know the true real God, the Father, who is the Creator, and from Him everything came, and we exist for Him and His glory. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom God made everything, and we exist through Him because He is our life and He is our resurrection. So we know that. Okay? So now we can just... Have fun with all the idolatry stuff. No. Paul says, I want to be clear on what we know and what we need to have. But we need to have that knowledge with humility. Okay? Because we don't have full knowledge as we ought to. So he's going to address the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now there's two ways for this to happen in the ancient world. You and I don't think about that because we have McDonald's and we have Taco Bell, we have restaurants, we have all this stuff. In the ancient world, almost all meals were at a temple. They didn't have restaurants like we have restaurants. They had temples. And they would sacrifice a part of it to the temple, to the God, and then the rest of it would be would be eaten by people. And then what was left over, if they didn't have people in the temples eating, they would then put that in what's called the shambles or the marketplace, and that food was then uh, available for people to buy. But almost all food was sacrificed to idols. Uh, Israel had a different system. They could sacrifice food to God and eat in a religious ceremony at the temple, but only at the temple. If they wanted to eat and they were away from the temple, they would kill the animal, drain the blood, 
The life is in the blood, I place it on the altar. They would separate that, and they would eat that, giving thanks to God for providing food from the earth. A very different notion. Now we've got Christians, Gentile believers and Jewish believers in diaspora, in places like Corinth, trying to figure out, well, how do we deal this? We're, we're surrounded by all these um, this food sacrificed to idols, and we're not near the temple where we can do it in that kind of way. So they're asking Paul about those kinds of things. They were in a polytheistic culture. Uh, and in that culture, there were many gods and many lords. Uh, but for us, Paul says, there is one God and one Lord. And he keeps that clear. God is our Father. We exist from Him and for Him. Jesus is our Lord. We exist by Him and through Him. You and I are in a secular culture. However, there is some idolatry going on. But for the most part, the food you buy at Stater Brothers or Ralph's was not sacrificed to an idol. It's different if you go into certain restaurants that are ethnic. Sometimes the idol will be there. You will see the idol. And there will be food or money or uh, or uh, incense being burned towards that altar, meaning that they have that all of their food is dedicated uh, uh, to that God. And so the idea then is, what do we do in that context? So Paul's now going to give us uh, some instruction. So in chapter eight, verse eight, he says, "Food will not commend us to God." Interesting word. The word "commend" there is to present us to God. Food in and of itself does not bring us near to God. Even though it's used in the sacrificial system, it's not what does it. It doesn't bring us to God. And also, we are not the worse if we eat. What he means there is we are not hindered. We have not fallen off the mark if we eat. Food is food, Paul is saying. Same thing he said in chapter 7. Remember, the the... Stomach is for food, food is for the stomach, but the body is for the Lord, right? So he's trying to give us these principles. And so he says, uh, it's important to understand uh, that people have differing knowledge. So after he says that, in verse 7 he says, not every man has this knowledge. Okay, Some, being accustomed to the idol until now... Eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Even though, as I said, food doesn't commend us to God, and we're not the worse if we eat it, nor are we better if we eat it. Food's food, but what's happening is, not everybody has this knowledge that there's only one God, and that's the only sacrifice, and these idols are nothing, and this food is nothing. Some people have a knowledge of the idol... And a knowledge of that God, probably because they came out of that system. And in that context, their conscience, he says, is weak. Interesting term. It's weak and it's defiled. Now, it's important for us to understand this. Um, The conscience is defiled by the mind. It's not defiled by the food. Jesus talks about this. I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 7. If you interpret Paul apart from Jesus and the prophets and the Torah, you you do a disservice to what 
the apostle, the rabbi, is trying to say. In, uh, in Mark chapter 7, beginning of verse 14, he called the crowd to him again and he said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things that proceed out of the man are what defile him. If you have ears to hear, hear. This again, that statement coming from Isaiah. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. What the heck are you talking about? Okay? Because they're steeped in Judaism and the danger is not seeing the teaching of the sacrificial system, but trusting in the sacrificial system. They begin to think that the sacrificial system is what makes you clean and unclean. So, he says, uh, Are you also lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside can't defile him? Because it goes not into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Now, your Bibles have a parenthetical statement there. Thus he declared all foods clean. That is the worst, most awful, completely wrong, bad, can I say it any stronger, just flat not true. The Greek cannot be interpreted this way, but virtually every Bible does. Except the King James. The King James Bible gets this verse right. It says it goes into the stomach and out through the latrine or out to the toilet, purging all foods. In other words, whatever is not good for you in foods ends up in the toilet so it can't defile you. That's what he's talking about. But replacement Christians and people who want to get rid of the law say Jesus here is saying that all food is clean. He didn't say that. Okay? He already said that it, food doesn't either make you clean or unclean. It's about the process of the ritual so that the mind understands the defilement is in the mind and in the conscience. Okay? So... Defilement is a matter of the heart and the conscience. It is not the idol and it's not the food. But the knowledge of the idol creates a conflict. And we are not to violate our conscience. Even if your conscience is wrong, you should follow your conscience until it gets corrected. Because if you violate your conscience on one point, you will sear that conscience so it doesn't work. And then where it is working appropriately, you will violate it. So, we, we are very bad as Christians in the formation of our conscience, based on the scriptures instead of the culture, and that's why the next generation grows up thinking that things are perfectly fine, that we are aghast at, because it's, our consciences often were controlled by the generation that we grew up in, and theirs in the generation they grew up in, and not the scriptures itself. So, back to uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul is saying uh, that the issue of defilement is the mind and the heart and the conscience, not the person themselves. Okay? It's not the food. But the knowledge of the idol creates the conflict. So, the idol and the food sacrificed to it doesn't present us to God or hold us back. So, he says now in chapter 8 verse 9, because now we have knowledge, right? We get puffed up. All right, so it doesn't matter. I'll just eat whatever I want. 
My conscience is okay. Watch out for that arrogance. Because that violates Paul's point. So here's Paul's point in verse 9. But take care that this liberty, the, the Greek word is exousia, this power, this ability you have, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the one who has the weak conscience. Because that's not love. Okay? If someone sees you who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, okay? in our case it would be a restaurant where an idol is actively being used. We know it's a piece of plaster. But not everybody does because some people are sacrificing to it and some people are attending that in that context. If he is weak, he will be strengthened or encouraged to eat things, sacrifice idols. And through your knowledge, the one who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. So the goal here is, there's a guy who's saying, wait a minute, this is, this is, there's an idol here. But so-and-so is doing it, so I, I guess it's okay. But what you're doing is you're eating just food. But he's eating food sacrificed to an idol because it's in his mind. His heart and his conscience is defiled. That's why he's the weaker brother, because the weaker brother, this term weak, is the idea that a person is responding to circumstances and things. Many of our fellow Christians think God's talking to them through circumstances. They are the weaker brothers. They are looking at things, not the word, not the illumination of the word. They're looking at these things just like the pagans do in their concept. And the God of this world is happy to lead them astray in that context. So, Paul says, be careful here that this ability of yours to eat without a weakened conscience becomes a problem for your brother. If you're in the temple of an idol or a restaurant that's doing that, and he sees you, he's encouraged to eat in violation of his conscience, and so now you're sinning against your brother for whom Christ died. Now, Paul expands this a little bit. I've got a little bit of time, so I want to do it. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 14. In an expanded passage that addresses a number of things, not just food sacrificed to idols, but I want to focus based on that. Paul addresses this issue of dealing with our weaker brother. So in chapter 14 of Romans, verse 1, he says, Accept the one who is weak in the faith. You don't say, okay, you... You're not taught well. I have knowledge. Who needs you, right? Again, love. We are to accept one another in the beloved. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things. Another who is weak is eating only vegetables. Now, he's not talking about vegetarians. Don't want to get into that, okay? It's amazing to me, we live in a time when you can, for health reasons, abstain from food and everybody applauds you. But if you do it for religious reasons, you're a nut. Okay? So he says, this guy's, I'm not going to eat any meat. I don't know if it's been sacrificed to an idol. Okay? One who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Don't judge the person who's doing that. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Man, you know we've all come from different backgrounds. And I'm going to use the example I try to use because I think it's the best one. If I'm coming to Christ from here, and there's the cross, and I'm coming this way 
to come to Christ. And Trevor's coming to Christ from here. And he's doing his best to come to Christ. It looks like we're walking in opposite directions. But we're going through our own maze to get to the place where we have to get to get here. And then we will walk as brothers. Be really careful. You know if you've been with the Lord for more than five years that there were things you were absolutely convinced of. But now you're not so sure. And you judged other people on the basis of that. Now you're judging the people that thought what you used to think. Right? Paul's saying, that's not love, that's not edifying, that's knowledge that puffs up. Okay? And our Bible colleges and our seminaries and our pulpits are full of that stuff. Okay? So, Paul is making it clear to us that we are to receive one another. And we're not to judge one another. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the other one. Now, look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. As it turns out, I'm not Trevor's Lord. Yeah. And thanks be to God, he's not mine. Right? The idea is, I mean, we get this authoritarian kind of craziness. Right? And, and while I have a responsibility as a pastor to give an account for people and to implore them and to struggle to get them to grow in grace and in knowledge, I'm not in control of anybody. I can hardly control myself. Right? And don't smirk because you've got the same problem. Right? So, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Because if he is following his conscience, the Lord will guide him ultimately through his word to clean up his conscience and to be on the path correctly. He who observes the day is observing it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. And he who gives thanks to God and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and he gives thanks. None of us live to ourselves. No one dies to himself. If the believer is struggling to obey God, then he's not going to be judging the other believer. He's, he's focused on his own obedience. But if he's judging the other person or he's saying, I don't want to do what God says, that's a different issue. But the, the true struggling believer who are coming to different conclusions at this point know only in part. And we need to give each other a little slack in that context. So, Paul then says, to this in verse 9 of 14, to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So why do you judge your brother? Or why do you regard your brother with contempt? Because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, Jesus said, we're going to give an account for every idle word. Paul says we're going to give an account for every, all the deeds done in the body. And the passage we read today was Jesus said, when I come back, I'm going to reward each man according to his deeds, not according to his faith. Reward is not based on faith. Salvation is based on faith. Reward is based on obedience. And punishment based on obedience. And that's a forgotten doctrine in the church. 
Therefore, let us judge each other no longer, but rather to determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, Paul's going to tell what he knows. I know, and I'm convinced in the Lord, that nothing is unclean of itself. He knows it's about the heart, right? But to him who thinks it's unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, what is my mind supposed to be conforming to? The Word of God. But even if it doesn't conform to the Word of God, it still controls whether I'm clean or not clean in that context. We don't violate our conscience. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, don't let your good deed be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He who in, in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. That, that's, that term acceptable is about sacrifice to God. Because you're giving something up you could do for the benefit of others. And approved by men. So when we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another... So don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are clean, but they are evil for a man who eats and gives offense. So the guy who eats violating his conscience is, a, is sinning. And the guy who says, I'm smarter than you so I can eat, is sinning probably greater. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that stumbles your brother. Now not bothers your brother. Some smart aleck judgmental jerk. We call them Christians. When, when that happens, okay, uh, that's, I, sometimes you have to rebuke one of them. A little spoiled brat of God who thinks it's his job to tell everybody what they should do. I'm not talking about that. These are people who are genuinely, humbly struggling to do what's right before God and come to somewhat different conclusions about it. Have faith, the faith which you have, have it as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eating not from faith, because whatever is not from faith is sin. This is a walk of faith, of trusting God through his word, and we grow in grace and in knowledge, and we are transformed in that framework. So, Paul makes that statement, and then we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the last verse. I know some of you thought I wouldn't get done by my normal time, but I can do it. Doesn't mean I always will, it means I can. Right? So, I'm in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, Paul in his writings gives a principle. I want to talk about that principle just for a moment. I didn't give the verse because I didn't think I'd have time, so I left it out, but I think it's appropriate here. Paul says, if you're invited somewhere to eat, go and eat what they give you. Okay, But if somebody says, oh, and by the way, this food was sacrificed to Zeus this morning. Now you don't eat. Not for your conscience sake, but for his. Because his statement indicates he has knowledge of the God. 
Okay? And you belong to a different God. And now it's explicit. So interestingly, Paul's approach to this is, don't ask, don't tell. He says the same thing. When you're in the shambles, the marketplace, buy whatever you want. But if somebody says, and this choice meat was sacrificed to Diana this morning or last week, okay? Then you say, they didn't have refrigeration. It wouldn't have been last week. It would have been this morning. Then you say, I don't want that. Okay? Not for your conscience sake. So we have, we have three people whose conscience have to be considered. My own. First and foremost. I walk within my conscience, enlightened by the word of God, always getting the word of God more and more into my mind and into my heart and into my life so that I will be clean inside and outside. Okay? Then, I am to watch out for my weaker brother who doesn't have the level of maturity I have and therefore is misinterpreting what I'm doing, trying to copy me externally without the internal maturity that is there. And thirdly, the non-believer's conscience who is a practitioner of this secularism or religiosity that is different because they're going to need to see that I belong to a different God. And that is the general principle that Paul is giving the Corinthians about things sacrificed to idols. Again, he's given us an understanding of sexuality in the midst of this present distress that he talks about. And now he's talking to them about the present circumstances under which they are coming into contact with issues of idolatry. Now... Paul's going to go beyond this. I just have a couple minutes, so let me do this. In chapter 9, we'll talk about this in two weeks, but I'm hoping you'll read ahead. Paul is going to use this notion of knowledge and power. What I'm allowed to do, and what I do for the sake of those who I am ministering to. And he's going to talk about some things that transformed my own ministry. I want to talk about that. Uh, in the context of these principles that sometimes never get preached because we turn everything into an evangelistic sermon and not a discipleship sermon. Then in chapter 10, he's going to go back to the Torah and he's going to give broader principles about these issues that he's been talking about, these great sins that keep creeping into the church as they crept into Israel and that we should be watching out for, not only for ourselves, but for the sake of our children and our grandchildren. So he completes the application of his principle. I am not to use my spiritual knowledge and maturity to win an argument or to challenge a weaker breather, uh, brother. That's arrogance. That's asthmatic. My asthmatic brother. That is arrogance and not love. I am to make sure that my behavior, publicly, specifically, and my behavior with a known weaker brother is focused on his edification. And Paul says, I would rather give up something that I am totally okay to do if it will destroy my brother. Now, interesting, Jesus said, if your hand causes you to offend, 
And in the context of that, he's not talking about offending you. He's talking about offending others. Cut it off. Better to enter into life in part than to be cast whole into hell. I have to say that right while I keep saying a hell hole, a hole into hell. That's, that's what it's talking about. So these principles come out of Torah. They come out of the prophets. They come out of Yeshua and his own teachings. And they are continued by the apostles in this holistic framework, giving us principles how we should live. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Let's pray.